Right, and on top of that, I don't quite get why you get uh, the bad guy, Katana, decides to make a truce, it decides to join the corporation to help track down McCloud. Yeah, or take it over. It's very unclear in this boardroom scene that's in the film. But, I mean, doesn't Katana have to... Uh, if he if he's an immortal in this modern time, don't you think he'd have the ability to tell where McCloud is? If you're going by the whole concept of the game where the immortals are drawn towards each other to engage in combat? After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. They are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. The theme song to the Sequel Cast is performed and written by Mark with the Sea. Check out his latest album, Motherfuckers Be Bullshitting, at markwiththesea.bandcamp.com. Now we return you to the sequel cast. Okay, now let me just see if I can get this straight. You're mortal there, but you're immortal here until you kill all the guys from there who have come here, and then you're mortal here. Unless you go back there, or some more guys from there come here, in which case you become immortal here, again. Something like that. Of course. It would be something like that, wouldn't it? Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a show that talks about movies in a franchise one movie at a time. Right now we're in the middle of looking at movies in the Highlander franchise, and uh, this week it's the infamous uh, film Highlander 2, The Quickening, also known as Highlander 2, uh, Renegade version, or Renegade. Uh, this was directed by Russell McCaughey, the director of the first film. A screenplay, a screenplay by Peter Bellwood, uh, based on a story by Brian Clemens and William N. Panzer, based on characters by Gregory Wyden. This stars, uh, like the original Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery, but new to the cast in the leads are Virginia Madsen and Michael Ironside. The music is by Stuart Copeland, who was a member of the popular uh, 80s pop group The Police. And um, this was released in 1991. Uh, off a budget of $34 million, it made uh, $15.5 million. So a bit of a loss on that one. I, I'm not sure if that's the uh, domestic or international gross. And I, I know this movie was filmed in Argentina as well. Uh, and I happened to live there at the time this movie was made. Although I wasn't around for any of the shooting, you know, I didn't know that at the time when I was a kid. So anyway, does that mean uh, the Nazis were responsible for this film? No, the Nazis aren't responsible for Highlander 2, although it might have been an improvement if they had. I don't know, this is such a bizarre sequel. Uh, that's You just heard there was Thrasher. Hey, everybody. Uh, you can check out our website, check out past episodes at sequelcast.com. Or uh, another good way to get in contact with us is if you go to facebook.com slash sequelcast. You can look at our Facebook page, and there's a lot of conversations going on there. So, in fact, someone you work with, Thrasher, has been talking about how much he loves Highlander. Is that right? Yes, that is the case. Uh, who is that? I don't know, because you've just now told me. God damn it. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, you should have prepped me for this. Let me find out. 
No, I, I got it right here. It is... Hmm. It's a good thing to pull this stuff up before the show instead of me just... Well, you know how it is. Yeah, that's the internet. The best laid uh, plans of mice and men often gang after glee. <laughs> the uh, acquaintance of yours, Thrasher, that uh, has been talking about Highlander a bit at uh, facebook.com slash sequelcast is Robert uh, Groover. Oh, yes, he's the author of some of the Wisdom of the Wasteland series. Is that through, you can get that through drive through RPG? You can find it through drive rpg.com. It's uh, another one of many fine publications by the good folks at Skirmisher Publishing, LLC. And uh, if you like the sequel cast, one thing you might want to check out, if you go to sequelcast.bandcamp.com, we've been doing uh, a few movie commentaries on there. Uh, by this time this episode comes out, we should have two on there. We did, uh, Thrasher and I did one for Smokey and the Bandit 3, and we uh, did a more recent one on Beverly Hills Cop 3. So you can listen to those streaming for free or download them at a price of your choosing. Who so, knows what we'll do next? Who knows, right? Maybe RoboCop 3. Shh, it's a secret. Okay. So we're here talking about Highlander 2, The Quickening. Uh, this movie has quite a storied history behind it before we start talking about the film. Uh, the directors and the producers were both fired from the film after it went over budget and weren't really involved in the editing. And the original uh, American cut, you know, called Highlander 2, The Quickening, is a bit different. Uh, there's a really great article online. If you go to Facebook.com, SequelCast, you can look at this article, originally written for Video Watchdog magazine by Sean Murphy. talks about different cuts of the film. There was a U.K. theatrical cut of Highlander 2 that's different from the U.S. cut. And then later still... In uh, 1995, there was a director's cut released to video called Highlander 2 Renegade Version. And then, even later, uh, the producers of Highlander, but not the director, revisited Highlander 2 in 2004 uh, with the Renegade Version, but they updated uh, special effects shots throughout the film with um, CG enhancements. And it's not quite... It's a pretty subtle update. I think unless you knew what you were looking for, you couldn't really tell the difference. So, uh, a lot of different versions of Highlander 2 out there. Uh, When is the first time you've seen this film, Thrasher? I have no idea when I first saw this film. Uh, This film, it's... I feel like Highlander 2 has always been with me, in a way. Kind of like my own dark side has always been with me. It just, I just, I, I, I don't remember a time when it wasn't on cable or when at least three of my friends didn't have it on DVD. Mm. Even before DVDs were invented, I remembered friends having it on DVD. <laughs> For me, you know, in, uh, in middle school, I had a friend that was really into swords and really into the, t- into the TV show. And for whatever reason, I never watched the TV show. But one weekend, I decided to rent all... Uh, at the time, all three Highlander movies and kind of watch them in a marathon, uh, all by my lonesome. And uh, so I, I saw sort of Highlander 2 the immediately after seeing Highlander 3. But the problem was, I was in high school at the time, and the only version on video was the Renegade version. I don't believe I've ever seen the theatrical cut um, that has some differences to it. Uh, the most notable of which, uh, aside from flashbacks being placed in different sequences is it refers to the Immortals originally coming from the planet Zeist in the theatrical version. But in the Renegade versions, they delete all mentions of the planet Zeist and just say 
the immortals all existed on Earth uh, several years ago. For some reason. For some reason, which is, in a way, even more confusing than the planet Zeist. Uh, I guess we can start about Highlander 2 by talking about this issue of the film. I think it's something that most people have problems with, in that the original film Highlander, as we mentioned on the show last week, and you can check out that episode at sequelcast.com, or look us up on iTunes, and if you do, please leave a positive review for us. That'd be much appreciated. Just look up SequelCast in iTunes. Uh, is, with Highlander 2, or the original Highlander, as I was going to say, there is a... Uh, it was pretty vague about the history of the characters. You know, you have this sort of theory about different immortals, and there's a time in the gathering, and when they chop off each other's heads, it becomes the quickening, where lightning shoots everywhere but they didn't get into the specifics. And a part of the reason they went into details in that in the sequel is fans wanted to tell them, well, what is the origin of the Highland- of the Immortals? I'm sorry, not the Highlanders. Because the Highlander only refers to Connor McCloud, uh, played by Christopher Lambert. You know, and, and fans wanted to know what the origin was, and that was part of the uh, impetus for the, for the sequel, as well as uh, Highlander, the original, being really popular on home video release. It wasn't a huge hit in the theaters. It did better overseas than in the U.S., but it did so well in the U.S. it helped, uh, you know, eventually convince studios to finance a sequel. So, it's a thing in the sequel to Highlander is, uh, once you know where these guys came from, is it good enough reason? Doesn't it kind of ruin some of the magic? I sort of compare it to the whole midichlorians uh, debacle in a Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. My, my own take on it, I, I don't mind the concept of the immortals being highland about the immortals being aliens and i don't and i don't mind the concept of i don't mind the science fiction concept because the quickening the immortality all that stuff you could simply it can simply be justified as being a product of sufficiently advanced technology the only problem is from what little we see of the planet zeist their technology doesn't make any goddamn sense <laughs> They they fight with swords, but they can apparently open time. They can apparently open time rifts, but they only use these time rifts to to exile people to Earth. It's it's all it's all very bizarre. Like in my head, I'm imagining a whole backstory involving nanotechnology run amok, and that now their bodies are suffused with it, but they don't really know how to use it. But that's just what I'm imagining. The, this movie doesn't give us any of that. No, like you said, it's given uh, for a movie that explains kind of the origins. It expresses the details in a very confusing fashion in just one or two scenes. And from what I can gather, uh, what Connor McLeod, played by Christopher Lambert, and Ramirez, played by Sean Connery, are set into the future as punishment for being part of a rebellion that's fighting against uh, the villain General Katana, played well, by Michael Ironside. Well, it depends on which cut, because if it's the theatrical yeah. cut, they're sent from Zeist to Earth, but on one of the alternate cuts, they're sent to the future. Right, from the past on Earth. Even which which doesn't really make it... Which doesn't really work for... Like, the, the notion of them being time travelers versus the notion of them being uh, aliens... I don't see either option being better than the other. Although then it does bring up the option: well, if they're from the if they're time travelers from the past, then they're still probably aliens. Because where did that crashed spaceship full of technology come from? Right, and you get a bit of a scene of this big um, epic battle between the rebels and the bad guys 
on Zeist or pre, or you know an, an ancient version of Earth, depending. Let's on just which call it Zeist. Let's yeah, just, just call it Zeist, Zeist to make it or simple. This is going to get just as, or, or this episode <laughs> of sequel cast will get just as confused as this movie. Right. Uh, very good. Uh, you know, but not only that. Um, you watch this sort of battle scene. It looks like a, an outtake from David Lynch's film Dune. Yeah, uh, D U N E. Right, you know, based off the novel by Frank Herbert. It, these guys in leather running around in the desert screaming, but it's not a real battle scene either. You're not invested in this conflict on Zeist, and that you explain these characters that seem to have not known each other in the last movie actually have known each other thousands of years ago, but they get transported randomly into uh, the future and then Onto get Earth. killed. Unto Earth, and I guess the game is literally a game that they play, sending these people into the future, seeing who gets killed first and who is worthy to eventually come back to Zeist. Like, it's an awful lot of exposition and not that much uh, dialogue or scenes in the film. Well, it's and in, it's in, like, the idea of using, of, of teleporting people to another planet and making them immortal and forcing them to kill each other as a form of punishment, that's a really neat kind of punishment. But... Really, that's the best thing they could think of doing with access to a time machine and the ability to make to make people immortal? The plot in this movie is very complicated and kind of confusing. On top of that, when you add all this Planet Zeist bullshit, it just makes it even more muddled. It doesn't help anything. Yeah. They could have thought, I felt the um, makers of this film could have thought of some way to make it where there's an immortal in the future that Connor McCloud doesn't know about and he has to fight him and his bad guys. You know, even simplifying it to that, I think, would make it a bit more, less confusing, well, the, be a, a bit of a more satisfying narrative. Well, the only thing that, that this movie does clear up is that now that you know that McLeod and Ramirez have a past on Zeist, it does make more sense why Ramirez comes out of the woodwork and mentors McLeod for a while. Right, because they already have a past history. That's true, but um, you know oh, this movie yeah. takes. Why are there alien? Why are there aliens named McCloud and Juan Ramirez? <laughs> Is this like the Mighty Marvel translator, where it's like just it's giving us the best fit, so it's giving us the names we're familiar with, or are those actually their names? And you can also think furthermore: at what time were they transported in these in the future? Is it that their bodies are literally transported, or could it even be? Um, their spirits transported in the bodies of earthly beings. Ah, uh, that seems like, th- I don't know, that seems way too metaphysical. Uh, since we do see, I, I believe you see the we bodies see transport. their bodies leave yeah. Zeist. I can, they, they've got to be actually physically transporting them between planets. I mean, the most useful thing the planet Zeist uh, prologue sequences establish is that if... McLeod ever needs Ramirez, he just has to call out Ramirez's name. And given that Ramirez got his head cut off in Highlander 1, you know, this sets up the return of Ramirez, played by Sean Connery. And uh, I, I do think it's smart they brought Sean Connery back for this movie. He was a big star. He's still the biggest star of this movie, even though it's the sequel. And he's fun to have around. He's fun as Ramirez. You notice on, on the, the Highlander 2, the quickening poster, the billing is Christopher Lambert, Virginia Madsen, Michael Ironsides, and Sean Connery. I think it is a crime that he's given fourth billing. It is, unless it's like Sean Connery as Ramirez. Sometimes it's you see not. that. No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> it's just uh, there. And, and, you know, Virginia Madsen plays a romantic interest in this movie as Louise Marcus. Uh, I happened to listen to an episode of the Kevin Pollack chat show podcast, which is really great, uh, where they talk to Virginia Madsen, 
and a fan was asking them on the show about Highlander 2, and she said she wanted to be in Highlander 1, almost got cast as a romantic lead, and then didn't quite make it, and did Highlander 2 just for an excuse to be in Argentina for three months, and she thought the script was garbage. And um, I think she does okay in the movie. I think certainly the, the female lead has more to do in this than in the original Highlander, where he had a cop that would also wrote a book on the history of metallurgy. I mean, in this one, she's sort of a, a, a part of an environmental uh, radical group. Well, I guess we should set up the concept for Highlander, too, before we really get into it. Yeah, the stuff with the time-traveling aliens wasn't the concept. So get ready. No, even though it's what a lot what people complain about the most, I think, when they talk about this film. And right off the bat, I do want to say Highlander 2, The Quickening, or Renegade version, depending on which version you see. I'll just call it The Quickening to make things easier. Uh, has balls. You know, we're doing a sequel to sort of a historical fantasy movie and saying we're going to make it like science fiction, like a, a sort of a Blade Runner and Captain Planet knockoff. Captain Planet? Really? You're equating this with Captain Planet? Just as far as the heavy, heavy environmental message. But it doesn't... But I, I, I challenge... I don't think this movie has an environmental message. But we'll get into that. But basically, okay. the concept is, at the end of the first Highlander movie, Connor McCloud won the prize, which is to be a mortal, and that he can have children. And although he apparently does not have children uh, with his wife uh, from the first film, he does grow old, and uh, with the knowledge he gained from all of humankind as part of the prize... He worked with a scientist to make a shield that protects the Earth from the savage effects of the ozone layer. Well, the o- yeah, pe- for, in, 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 the, in the future of, of 1999, as portrayed in this film, the Earth has lost its ozone layer and there's no protection from solar radiation, which is just baking humanity alive. Uh, and I believe it's, I believe it's implied that, that McLeod's wife dies due to a solar radiation overdose. And so, yeah, uh, it, he, it is, and, that, and that's spelled out more um, more literally in the uh, Renegade uh, cut of the film. So yeah, he, he and some scientists they they invent a uh, they invent an, a shield that that protects people from uh, from the solar radiation, but also makes the sky red and depressing. <laughs> and that's the thing that depends on which cut you're watching of this film as well, because in the most recent, I'll call it like the producer's version of the Renegade cut. They changed the uh, the shield from red to blue. Well, then it's much less depressing. I agree. Before, it was like a real savage neon red, almost like a color you'd see. It reminds me of Escape from New York for some reason. But yeah, I I, I think in, in, I think I prefer the the red sky version better, just because it's, it's much more oppressive. But it does it does make a, a lot of parts of the film kind of difficult to look at. Yeah, I mean, in the uh, revised producer's uh, renegade version of Highlander 2, it's blue, and it's a calm blue color, which the producers claim is their intention all along. But the problem is, you're covering up a blue sky with blue. It doesn't look threatening. It looks uh, kind of cloudy outside, <laughs> Like it, even though they did it with uh, modern computer graphics to yeah. put that color on top of it. I, I, I agree in that I like the red better. And uh, in the older version of the Renegade cut that was on videotape and early versions of the DVD, that is with the red uh, version as well. So, I mean, that's a questionable change. But as part of the S.H.I.E.L.D. going up, there's a corporation called the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation that's in charge of it. And somehow everyone is poor and uh, the cities look like a, a, a knockoff of Blade Runner. 
And they don't really go into why that's the case much either. Like, just because the ozone layer is protected, now everyone is in poverty except for high-ranking officers of the corporation. Well, I, I, I always presumed that, that the, I always figured the reason the, the world appeared to be an economic collapse was as a side effect from the period before the shield went up because lots of people died. So massive yeah. death, that's going to throw off, that's going to throw off your base for employment and education and whatnot. But then the people who survived, who, but who lived through that period, a lot of them are going to have long-term problems caused by overexposure to the solar radiation. So I'm sure a lot of resources are going into to caring for people who are suffering from those, those ailments. Uh, and hell, for all we know, people were getting sterilized by the solar radiation. So you know, when when you got no kids, you got no future. Uh, so I don't know. But but the thing that that I never understood, I couldn't figure out how the Shield Corporation made its money. Like I presume, yeah, like, they suggest that governments are paying them, and that's that's fine. But. What happens when someone doesn't pay? Because it seems like the shield is just always up. If your country doesn't pay, do they? Sh- they don't appear to be able to shut off the shield on top of your country. Like, I, right, I could Thra- not fathom the economic model behind the shield corporation. You're right, Thrasher. It would have been very useful had the movie had a scene to sort of explain that. Uh, something to demonstrate how evil the corporation is. But instead, just because it's called a corporation... They're supposed to be evil, and well, it's the irony that this shield that McLeod helped create has resulted in humanity, uh, most of humanity being in poverty and being miserable. Well, I mean, we, we do know the corporation is evil only because we do find out relatively early on that the Earth's ozone layer has regenerated, so the shield is completely unnecessary. Uh, so, right. So- I mean, in, in the film, there's a, a radical group led by uh, Louise Marcus, played by... Virginia Madsen, that is trying to disable the shield because they feel that the, uh, like you said, that the ozone layer is really fine. The shield wasn't needed, isn't needed anymore. But they have no real proof of that. It's just a theory. And as you see uh, an attempted sort of attempt to shut down the shield, uh, you see also see Connor McCloud as an old man uh, doing a very uh, Christopher Lambert does a terrible job with an old man voice. <laughs> yeah, you know, like the old man makeup he's wearing is actually very good old man makeup. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah, he speaks with this terrible smoker's voice. You're a good boy, Jimmy. <laughs> it, it almost sounds like a poor Merlin Brando impersonation or something. I don't know. It, <laughs> it's like it's like my old friend Ramirez. Ramirez, <laughs> stay in the car, and, and you get. You get a cute joke where he walks into a bar and he he boots up the jukebox and it plays It's a Kind of Magic by Queen, which is off the Queen album that was the veritable soundtrack to the original Highlander anyway. I think that was literally called A Kind of Magic. I think that's another um, strike against this film. Yeah. Like, I, I, that Queen, specifically that album, is really inextricably linked with Highlander. The fact that we only get that little snippet of Queen is almost a slap in the face to the original <laughs> film and what would become the greater body of work for the Highlander franchise. Well, what did you think of the music in this film by Stuart Copeland uh, of the police fame? Well, you know, I actually like it. I think it, it, it's great. It's great music for like a, a, a sort of cyberpunk 
adventure movie, but this really isn't a cyberpunk adventure movie. It's still it's still urban fantasy. Well, it's either urban fantasy disguised as cyberpunk or cyberpunk disguised as urban fantasy. Um, it it doesn't quite jive with the fantasy elements that keep intruding on the film. But overall, I like it. I just I would rather have it in a different. I mean, the way the Renegade cut opens, and you can interrupt me, Thrasher, if the, you saw the theatrical version, if this opens differently, is it has McCloud at the opera right in the beginning. And it reminds him of scenes of him uh, on the old version of Earth, or the planet Zeist, as, as it referred to in the original theatrical version. Yeah, he's watching the Gotterdammerung by Wagner. Is that how the theatrical version began? Um, I, okay, I, I, I have seen every version of Highlander, yeah. of Highlander 2, but they all... Like in my mind, I don't know how to. I don't exactly know how to tell them apart. I believe the theatrical release, yes, does. St- well, the, the the I believe the theatrical cut actually starts with like the pseudo documentary background about the solar radiation and the shield going up, then goes to him going to the opera house. But there's a lot of internal monologuing as well as he's going. Yeah, a lot of narration in this movie. Uh, but when you see the planet Zeiss stuff, it's sort of introduces the villain, General Katana, played by Michael Ironside. And Michael Ironside is such a wonderful character actor to play bad guys. I really like him. I really do like him as a villain. I think he looks a bit ridiculous with long hair. Uh, That's something I can't quite swallow. I kind of like it, because it's like he's an aging Nordic rock god. (laughs) But uh, the problem I find is General Katana, as a character, he's just like an asshole and likes to kill people, but he's not memorable in the same way uh, the Kurgan was in the first film. Yeah, uh, he, I guess I, I couldn't, like, I, I wish I knew exactly why General Katana is the villain. Because presumably he is a brutal warlord back on Zeist. Right. But I never, like, I would like to have seen some of that brutality on Zeist. I mean, I don't really see him do anything very clearly evil until he gets to, to Earth. And he's almost like, he's like homicidally gleeful. He's like the Joker. If the Joker was invulnerable, that's what this guy would be. Right, you know, he hasn't just played bad guys in his career. He was a, he played, you know, Gene Razak and Starship Trooper was one of the good guys, one of the generals in there, or he was a teacher in that one. And uh, in oh, he's um, the voice of Tyler on uh, Heavy Metal Two Thousand. Right, I mean, it's a very noticeable, and he played the part as the main character, Sam Fisher, a good guy in the whole series of Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell, all oh, these yeah. video games. So it's a very gravelly voice. Once you hear it, you certainly recognize it. And uh, he seems to have fun playing Katana, but the character is so flat, you're not invested. I guess, like you said, this guy was a bad guy because he was a bad guy back when they knew him back on the planet Zeist or the, the, um, you know, years, years, years ago on Earth, depending on what version you're watching. But that's not enough. It's just, it just feels like a knockoff of the Kurgan, except not as gross. It's very weird. Um, but so as part of this, of uh, Katana on the planet Zeiss, he can monitor what McCloud is doing, and he sends two of his cronies, Corda and Reno, that look like part human, part bird, or they have these, like, beak things on them. Yeah, they've got, and, they've got a real uh, uh, raven motif uh, going on. And they like to laugh like the brownies in Willow. It's a very high-pitched screech. <laughs> Yeah, or like Salacious Crumb. Yeah, or like Salacious Crumb in Return of the Jedi, that same sort of obnoxious screech. And as McCloud is talking in a bar, 
with uh, Luis Marcus, the soon-to-be romantic interest, he gets under attack from these uh, villains from the planet Zeist, or the very far past, whatever you're watching. And they're on these hoverboards, and uh, he's still an old man, but having to fight them. And I think it's a pretty neat action scene, actually. No, it is a fun fight scene. I, I, although the, th- the thing that kills it for me is that when, when the bird guys are first introduced and they uh, on Earth, when the bird guys arrive on Earth and first confront McCloud, in every cut of the movie I've seen, you can see the strings for their wire work. Yep. And it's just it's just glaringly them on the on a harness. There's no illusion of hover technology or anything. Well, not only that, you have these very cheesy jokes where in the middle of the fight scene, uh, the bird people go by a guy that's smoking, and he goes to them, "Hey, hey, you got a light?" And they set him on. They launch a flamethrower at him and set him on fire, and they start giggling. Yeah, I would say like they're. Their guns are like the Judge Dredd... Either their guns are the <laughs> shittiest technology Zeist has available, or they're like the guns from Judge Dredd and they have all these settings. Because when they shoot someone, I like it. the effects range from it's a direct hit and it just stings really bad to complete combustion of the target. Yeah, that's sort of interesting. I mean, I like in the fight scene you have an older Connor McCloud using this weird hoverboard technology, at least for part of the fight, to fight them. It's different than from a regular sword fight uh, that you'll see later on in the film. Yeah, it's very kinetic. And also the fact that Connor McCloud is in an, is in an aged body, I actually like that. It makes him a lot more vulnerable. You know, I, I'm, I am more concerned that... Like, when I first saw this movie in its entirety, there was a party that was like, oh gosh, they're going to kill McCloud in the very first fight scene. <laughs> Yeah, and um, but you know, McCloud is the victor as he cuts off the head. He well, well, that's the thing is he doesn't actually cut off the head. He like is fighting a guy on a train. The guy falls off the train, and the trains and is gets he gets caught on the tracks, and the train cuts his head off. But apparently, that's good enough. Right, and out of this incredible quickening effect that destroys entire buildings, it, it's really at a much higher level than it was in the first film somehow McCloud gains the power to be immortal again. Like, that's not explained very well either, but he's younger. Well, it looks okay. like. apparently now that there's more immortals on Earth, and he did the quickening, he's been rejuvenated and made immortal again. And the sad, the sad thing is, as crazy as, as we sound trying to explain this, there's a <laughs> scene where Connor is explaining is explaining this very thing about how immortality and Zeist works to the female lead, to Virginia Madsen's character, and it makes about as much sense, and the film doesn't even take it seriously. Right. I mean, the movie is extraordinarily convoluted. It is just to a very ridiculous level. I mean, words cannot describe it. You kind of have to sit it sit through it. I've seen this movie probably four or five times. I still can't quite make sense of the whole thing. Um, But also, the weird thing is in the middle of this fight, as Ramirez promised in the beginning, in the flashback in the beginning of the film, uh, Connor McCloud calls out, Ramirez, my dear friend Ramirez. And it's not until quite a bit later that Ramirez gets revived 
onto a stage that they're performing Hamlet at. Yeah, because like during the height of the fight, during the second quickening, when McLeod kills the other bird guy, during that quickening, he says Ramirez, which I guess jumpstarts the whole process. And yeah, Ramirez is reconstituted with all of his worldly goods on a stage in Scotland where they're doing Hamlet. And a lot of bad comedy proceeds. Yeah, it's just so weird. I mean, the whole stuff with reintroducing Ramirez, it's fine to get Sean Connery back in the picture because they made this pact while they were on the planet Zeist. I can swallow that to get Sean Connery back. But then you have these endless scenes of Sean Connery uh, as Ramirez getting into modern-day clothes and taking an airplane and being surprised at what an airplane is. But if his character is from the planet Zeist, wouldn't he know some of this futuristic stuff? Or maybe not. I don't know. It's just so strange. Well, yeah. Like, well, the whole plane thing is very bizarre. Because on the one hand, I love it when he's putting the moves on the woman who's sitting next to him and talking. <laughs> you know, all the show of those beautiful women in, the, in history have all had dark hair. Cleopatra, Helen of Troy, the dark-haired yeah. woman is sensual. You know, like that's great. But then, yeah, why is an alien bewildered by flight? He can handle time travel and immortality, but not flight. But then the other thing that boggles my mind, and this is even more bad comedy, which seems to follow Ramirez around in this, when he's on the plane, he watches, like, the safety video. And the safety video is the most horrific montage of, of people <laughs> dying on a plane, ending with a model plane exploding against a hillside. Yeah, it's kind of funny, but then again, it doesn't feel like something out of Highlander. You have a bit of these sort of satirical commercials peppered throughout Highlander, too, but they don't work. It feels more like something out of RoboCop. Yeah, those scenes particularly. Although, I gotta say this, though. I like the I like the montage where Ramirez is getting fitted for his modern clothes. Really? Well, with the classical bit of music and he's just smoking? Overture, yeah. The William Tell Overture, yeah. Like, just on its own, like, that's how I imagine Sean Connery lives his, lives his life every day. He gets up, has a scotch and a cigar, thresh me! And then, like, he's got... <laughs> start dressing him. But the thing, like, they make a big deal about how, like, they're the oldest gentleman's, gentleman's tailor in Scotland, and yet everyone who works there is the most British person in the film. <laughs> like, not a single one of them seems like a, like a real Scotsman. Now, the line of dialogue you were referring to earlier, Thrasher, where they explain the plot of the film, I have it right up here in front of me. I'm going to read it out loud. Okay. It's... It's the female love interest, Luis Marcus, is explaining to what she thinks is happening to Connor McLeod. And uh, it's a, I actually like this line of dialogue. I think it's making fun of itself, but it doesn't, if your plot's this complicated where there has to be a scene in the movie where you explain what's happening, yeah. that might be a sign things aren't working. So here's the line of dialogue. It's right after they have sex. And uh, Luis Marcus says, Okay, now let me see if I can just get this straight. You come from another planet and you're mortal there. But you're immortal here until you kill all the guys from there who have come here. And then you're mortal here, unless you go back there where some more guys from there came here, in which case you become immortal here again. And McLeod responds, something like that. And that should be the, the, movie's, <laughs> the movie's tagline. I don't know what the movie's tagline originally was, but the movie's tagline might as well be something like that. It should be Highlander 2, The Quickening. Something like that. Because that's like the attitude this film seems to have about itself. It's such fucking nonsense. I mean, so the bird people get killed off, and Katana, fairly late in the film, is like, oh, if you want something right, I'm going to have to do it myself. And he sends himself into the future to confront McLeod. 
Now, mean, if McCloud is mortal and aging and dying and on Earth, why... Why does, not let him die? Yeah, why does Katana want him dead? Is it just I guess pride? I think it's pride. I think he, he's like, you know, I want my guys to finish him off. I want him to die in a battle. I want to prove that my guys are cool enough that they can do it. Oh, wait, they can't do it. So I'm going to go and do it myself. I'm going to get a job done. But because in the film they never set up why General Katana is really a bad guy or give you a good reason to hate him, the character is so two-dimensional and vapid that you don't really care. Well, you know, taking taking this this further, um, with, you know, with... with yeah, katana and, and 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 all this stuff, and this goes with Zeist. Okay, so Connor Connor was immortal on Earth, and he was you know on Earth for like maybe was it five hundred years or so in the original film, uh, something like that. Yeah. So that means that at least for at least five hundred years, and, and possibly no more, because Ramirez was sent to Earth the same time and was in ancient Egypt. So that so what is Katana several hundred if not a thousand or more years old? But not I think necessarily you're, immortal? I think you're right, technically. It's because he's been on Zeist all this time. You just can't think about it. It's confusing no matter which way you slice it, whether you look at the theatrical cut where they come from Planet Zeist, or with the uh, the later cuts where it's an older version of Earth, which in a way, makes even less sense. At some point, you just have to suspend your disbelief and say, okay, the bad guy's transporting to the same time as the good guy, and they're going to fight. Is what it boils down to in the end. And, um, you know, uh, what am I trying to say here? Virginia Madsen sort of teams up with them because she's part of the rebellion. And, uh, but before they decide to go off and you know, try and figure out what to do to get rid of this shield. McLeod remembers a friend of his that he designed the shield with, Dr. Alan Neiman, uh, played by Alan Rich. And he goes to see him in the corporation. And, yeah, and it's just the, the, the usual, this they learn about, you know, the, the ozone layer the having been generated and the shield being superfluous and some some corporate backstabbing and dickery happens, and the scientist is thrown into a maximum security, presumably privatized prison, presumably owned by the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation. So here's yeah, a so- question. McCloud it helped invent the S.H.I.E.L.D., but he doesn't own it? Or own part of it? You know, in the uh, in the Renegade cut, they have a scene where they do explicitly spell out that McLeod's wife died, or, or the, I should say the wife that's the romantic interest at the end of the first Highlander film has died because of the ravages of uh, the sun, you know, of the ozone layer being depleted and the effects of the sun from that. And that's what motivates him. He'll do any, and she makes a request that you need to save the people. And he's like, I'll do anything. I'll save them. I'll make sure they're safe. And I think he just feels like he's doing it out of the goodness of his heart and that He's not a businessman. This corporation wants to be in charge of the shield. He's like, okay, let it have be. I did what my, you know, recently departed wife wanted. I invented the shield to save humankind. I think McLeod is a selfless person. Oh yeah, he he is. It's just like I just it just it seems like 
I, I always felt like that people should have. I don't know, like as a guy who invented this thing that saved the world and made the Shield Corporation ridiculously wealthy, you'd think he would be surrounded by a certain amount of awe and respect within the corporation, especially when he deages. Or you think maybe he would keep on him some sort of kill switch for the Shield? Well. Actually, speaking of which, that's what I don't get because they seem to yeah. talk about like the shield as if you can't turn it off. Like, you know, th- there's even a line of dialogue where the guy from Scrubs says, like, you know, you, it would it would take it was just some, talking about how much power it would take to shut the shield down, which is really like, really you can't just turn it off. There's no off switch. You can't cut the power supply. You actually have to pump energy into it to shut it off. It's bizarre no matter how you slice it. I mean, when they get they get the coordinates and they go to the location where um, I guess there's an apparent breach that they can get through the shield so they can see for sure if the ozone layer is safe or not before removing the uh, the shield. There's sort of a, a weird scene where... They're on a mountaintop. Oh, no, but before that, was this in your version where they get in a car and drive and the security guards shoot them all up? Yeah, yeah, they pretend to be dead. Right. They pretend to be dead, and, and then the, Virginia yeah, Madsen busts out the trunk. joined up with McLeod, and there's some, and there's some talk in that scene, like, "Oh, they must have shot me seventy three times. They shot me one hundred and eleven. You call that last one a, a shot? That's just a scratch. It went completely through me. It's like some that I like. I like that now that they have a cavalier attitude towards danger. Now that they're immortal, but and I kind of like that exchange, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I could have because I've been burned by the movie so many times before then. I mean, one line of dialogue I think is cute in the movie, but I think for the wrong reasons. Is you before they leave, before you know they get in their car to go to this location where the shield is safe to go through. They they get in the car and they fire it up, and uh, Sean Connery says, "Hit it, dude!" As they hit the accelerator and go off in their car. Yes, Sean Connery yes, saying, "Hit it, dude." Is yeah, bad comedy and just weird. I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't quite work. But it's just funny seeing Sean Connery say strange things. And there's also like a, a running gag earlier in the film where he's calling people um, shithead. Shithead. Yeah, because because the because the actor in the Scottish production of Hamlet turns out it turns out to be from the north. It's like, oh, what are you all about shithead? After he's under the slightest bit of stress. Uh, but yeah, but like that's so. But then even Ramirez like shithead. What's a shithead? Really? He doesn't know what a shithead is. I think that would have been a. Yeah, I don't know. I like think he, that would have been. Ramirez, it's like Ramirez's brain has been addled by being dead for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Where the hell were we? Oh yes, the sh- yeah. Oh yeah. Here's here's the thing. So, so the corporation knows that those on layers back, and, and you know they keep, and they haven't told anyone. How does no one else know they have planes? Surely, they people have flown above the shield and looked at the sky, which apparently looks different when there's an ozone. Right, and on top of that, I don't quite get why you get uh, the bad guy Katana decides to make a truce, it decides to join the corporation. To or help track down over. McCloud? Yeah, or take it over. It's very unclear in this boardroom scene that's in the film. But, I mean, doesn't Katana have to uh, 
if he if he's an immortal in this modern time, don't you think he'd have the ability to tell where McCloud is? If you're going by the whole concept of the game where the immortals are drawn towards each other to engage in combat? Presumably, yes. Why would he need the corporation at all? That just seems like a weird... I guess we can have radar so you can see as the audience, oh, he's tracking down, he set up these, there's these traps they got to go through. Well, I guess the only thing I can think is maybe maybe uh, Katana has figured, well, I've already conquered Zeist. I have access to a machine that gives me access to a whole other planet. I'll just conquer another planet. And it's so lame how uh, Sean Connery fucking sacrifices himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they, they're, they're escaping from the prison... And in the prison, it has a, ju- a ho- like a hallway junction with a giant descending rotating blades. The thing reason. being, the rotating blades, if they cut off the head, they'll die. Well, no, they don't even say that, because does it mean that if you're immortal, do you have to get your head cut off by another Highlander, or does your head just have to be cut off? Well, clearly like, not, because your head can be cut off by a train, and it triggers a quickening. Like, okay, I, well, sure. I, figured so those, maybe that's I guess those blades threat. wouldn't just cut off your head. They'd cut off your everything if they got all the way down to the floor. But yeah, Ramirez just figures, well, I was dead, now I'm alive. I can re-dead myself. And like, what does, like, an en- like turns himself into an energy pulse to turn the blades away? It's... You think with all the power the immortals have, they could have cut a hole through the wall <laughs> and escaped? Yeah, they have really nice swords. Or or you could have, it would have been nicer, maybe, if they would have had, you know, you get Katana and McCloud, or you get McCloud and Ramirez versus Katana, and Katana kills Ramirez in front of McCloud. Like, yeah, something like that would have been fine. Stake. Yeah, more would have been at stake. But no, instead, he, he goes out like a, like a pussy in this weird scene, where he uses his energy to stop an especially aggressive ceiling fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Oh, just it, 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 you know it bring it brings up the whole the whole galaxy quest issue. What purpose does that serve in a prison? I guess you know if they're getting close to the energy core to shut down the yeah I don't know it doesn't make much sense like the rest of this fucking movie. Ugh, jeez. Oh, but hey, let's let's skip to the ending where where uh, McCloud and Katana do battle over the giant laser beam that powers the the shield. I I kind of like the fight. It does go on a little longer than than I'd like. It's certainly not it's not quite like it's well choreographed, but it's not as exciting as the one where McCloud is the hoverboard and he can fly. The thing that pisses 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 me off about that fight is he finally kills General Katana, lops his head clean off. And the quickening zap, that's it. It's the quickest, most dull quickening we've ever seen. Yeah, I don't know if that was because of budgetary reasons or whatever, but even compared to the quickening in the beginning where one of the bird people's heads get chopped off and you see buildings explode, this one's just a real big nothing. And, I mean, the, the movie wraps up pretty soon after that. And that yeah, the steps, shield gets... He steps into the path of the laser and releases the energy of the quickening, which is apparently the energy of a sufficient enough magnitude to shut the thing down and sets off a shockwave that not only not only destroys the laser generating the shield, destroys the shield satellite, and apparently there was only one, they weren't networked or anything, and also destroys the corporate headquarters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the ending's not very satisfying either. 
<laughs> and, then, and then, depending on which version you're listening to, there's a little bit of extra narration from Ramirez. You know, you, you've got a full measure of life, you two. Use it wisely. Right, and uh, Lambert and McLeod and uh, Luis Marcus kiss. And you see the stars, and the movie ends. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't... I think the first movie did so much stuff well that to see a franchise stumble so much with its second entry, I appreciate that they were ballsy in trying to do a science fiction film. Uh, you know, I have more of a science fiction setting, at least. Well, that is, that is, I think, the thing that I do kind of like the most, because the original Highlighter is so self-contained, I do applaud their willingness to go totally nuts for the sequel. Like, I, I, I admire the ambition that went into, well, we said everything we ever needed to say in the first one. What the hell, aliens in the future? <laughs> I mean, you know, part of it is that the way the first one ended, how the hell do you do a sequel? I mean, that's a real tough thing to figure out to begin with. But well, the thing is, since he's a guy that's lived for so long, they could have just they could have had one that took place in the past, do one that's entirely a period piece. Yeah. But yeah, this this is this, folks. This is a no matter what version you're watching, this is a crazy movie, and it's there. There are two. There are two truly mind-boggling sequels that are constantly referenced. Highlander 2, The Quickening, and Break Into Electric Boogaloo. There's a reason why when people name come up with a name for a bad sequel, it either has Electric Boogaloo or The Quickening attached. Mm. Right. You know, I think we should go here and uh, talk about overall thoughts for Highlander 2 and then go into our Pitch a Sequel segment. All right. Uh, overall, Highlander 2, uh, the quickening, or renegade version, depending on which one you're watching, I would not recommend, even if you're a big fan of the first film. Uh, they don't even reference this. Uh, there's a cute reference to this in Highlander uh, 3, the final dimension, as we'll see next week uh, on, this show, on the sequel cast. But, I mean, you can skip this one and see the other Highlander movies and enjoy them just as good. It's nice to see Sean Connery again. Uh, the sequence in the hoverboard, that action sequence with uh, Connor McCloud against the bird people is okay. But there's not nearly enough for me to recommend this. I'd say give this a pass. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go the, op- the opposite direction. I think you need to see this. Oh, yeah? I think not just for the, the, greater, the greater body of work, but also to understand what everyone's talking about, but also to this is something that has to be experienced firsthand. You, you have to see firsthand what happens when there's demand for a sequel for a movie that's done so well it does not need a sequel. I mean, frankly, they had nowhere to go but down after Highlander. And, and so in a lot of ways, I, I feel it's wrong to just dump relentlessly on, on this movie. I don't think any version of Highlander 2, no matter what they had done with it, would have been any better than the version that we got. And mm. then, frankly, doing this, doing the you know, Highlighter to the Quickening, it purged a lot of, like, it put all the potential craziness that could have gotten tacked onto the franchise, put it all in one place, and purged it. 
which is why in, in the, why the Highlander mythology is a lot cleaner going into going into the later movies and into the TV series. Yeah. That's all I get from you. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's play our pitch a sequel game oh, in which yeah. we uh, pretend none of the sequels after Highlander 2 existed and we pitch our own idea for a sequel. I'll start. Um, after Highlander 2, the quickening, where do you go from this one? I think you, uh, what I would do is I would kind of do a movie in between Highlander and Highlander 2, the quickening, in which you deal with the tragedy of Connor McCloud dealing with uh, his human wife uh, from the first film getting radiation sickness and poisoning and the development of the shield. And instead of having, you'd have some action in there somehow, you'd have, you'd explain about the formation of the shield corporation and the formation of the shield itself and the eventual beginnings of the portrayal the corporation does on humankind by uh, making them all poor and the cities all being shitty and so forth. Mm-hmm. That's my pitch for Highlander 3. An origin story for Highlander 2. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well here, here's my pitch for, for a Highlander 3. Uh, I would do a High, Highlander 3 Resurgence uh, would be my sequel. And so here, here's what happened. So, we all know Katana came from Zeist to Earth. The problem, the, the problem is, he didn't exactly know how to operate the machine himself. He's not one of those three Richard O'Briens we saw in the earlier Zeist scenes. So, the, the short of it is that um, he, he came to Earth and he always had the means to return to Zeist. But since he's dead, he never used it. It's just a weird piece of Zeistian technology. And the short of it is that the machine that transports you to Earth and makes you immortal, uh, that machine has been left on. So now there's a permanent link connecting Zeist to Earth. And now that the shield's down and humanity is recovering and, you know, the, the environment is repairing itself, the people of the planet Zeist find out that their warlord is, is dead and also find out that there's a, now a portal connecting their dead uh, desert planet to a, to a vibrant, relatively young planet full of resources. So the people, uh, people of Zeist, uh, warriors and peasants alike, start swarming through the portal and start invading the Earth. So we have a small army of immortals start str- swarming over the globe, trying to seize the Earth and its resources for themselves. And of course, they can't be killed. So now that there are more immortals, on, and of course there are more immortals on Earth, so Connor is still immortal. Uh, so Connor, now it can be only one, you know, Connor has to cut his way through this immortal army and find a way to shut down the portal and permanently sever the connection between Earth and Zeist. And while this is going on, we would actually learn a bit more about the planet Zeist, a bit more about its history, a bit more about its technology, so that those pieces of the Highlander mythology can make a little bit more sense. But we're not going to waste too much time on exposition. And of course, if the portal's left open too long, it could rip a, a, a rent in the fabric of space and time. And so that's also something they have to stop. Hmm. It's a pretty involved, sort of like an invasion picture with them coming from. Yeah, the planet. only Earth is being invaded by is being invaded by uh, sword wielding warriors that cannot be killed. <laughs> hey, but can I ask you something? Sure. What you what you what you watching? 
Very good. That's our uh, What You're Watching segment, which we talk about a movie, a video game, book, whatever form of media we've experienced over the past week. For me, um, I recently finished reading a book called... Let me. I don't quite remember the title. Give me a second. I just finished reading a book called uh, Jacked by David Kushner. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, an unauthorized. It's called Jack: The Outlaw Story of Grand Theft Auto, and it talks about the history of the company Rockstar and uh, history behind all the Grand Theft Auto video games. Mm-hmm. And David Kushner did a uh, a really good book about video games called uh, Masters of Doom: How Two Guys Created an Empire and Transformed Pop Culture about John Romero and um, John Carmack. And it, it's really pretty good. Like, I like how he writes. He gets involved. You you learn about how this company uh, from England, I think the founders are from England, I believe, you know, started making Grand Theft Auto and it became this big, big thing. That talks about some of the controversy to some of the lawsuits related to it that have happened over time. And um, while the Grand Theft Auto games aren't my favorite, I do enjoy them. So this is an interesting look at a piece of video game history. Uh, what's something you've been enjoying the past week, Thrasher? Actually, I, I got back into reading uh, P.G. Woodhouse, who's a, just a marvelous uh, writer of, of uh, humor and farcical stories from, from, from Great Britain. Uh, I'm currently uh, reading, I'm actually writing dead in the middle of uh, his story, Strychnine in the Soup. Which is one of his Mister Mueller stories. Hmm. But he, uh, but PG Woodhouse, he, he's the he's the man who created Jeeves and Wooster, the archetypal butler and the archetypal uh, upper class uh, British twit, and they're just they're just delightful delightful stories that like he, he writes he writes uh, like stories that like have both comedy and romance in them, but they seem to work. They're not like romantic comedy. He doesn't. He doesn't waste time on like stupid bullshit like in a romantic comedies. You get a nice little arc for the relationship, and it always has to end with a marriage, and they're just hilarious. So, do these uh, novels tie together? Um, actually, this uh, the Mueller story. He did a lot of short stories, and some of his short stories used a similar framing device. So, his Mister Mueller stories they all start with Mister Mueller in a gentleman's club or a tavern, or in this case, a. Uh, if I remember correctly, like a, a, a yacht club, uh, like a like a yacht club bar, and someone, some person uh, in in this establishment is drinking alcohol and mentions some little misfortune that's happened to him recently. And then Mister Mueller steps in, saying, "Oh well, you know, I have a nephew that recently ran into similar trouble." And then from that point on, it's the story of his nephew, but it's always a different nephew each time. Hmm. And this particular nephew uh, is an interior decorator who wants to marry this lovely young woman. And the lovely young woman's uh, mother is an explorer and big game hunter and basically wants a real man's man to marry her daughter. And the interior decorator is not uh, a man's man, but is determined to get the mother's blessing for the marriage. But he's also obsessed with mystery novels. And there's this whole thing where he's trying to finish a mystery novel called Strychnine in the Soup, but every time he gets his hands on a copy, it always leaves his possession. 
pretty cool. I have to check those out. I've always meant to uh, read some stuff by uh, Wodehouse. I've just never had the chance to yet. Well, well if you never get a chance, if you never, uh, if it's if you don't find uh, a good collection to read from, then you can also check out the BBC did a series of Jeeves and Wooster. They adapted a number of Jeeves and Wooster stories into a BBC television series starring uh, uh, Peter Lorre and Stephen Fry, and it, it is fantastic. Very cool. Um, all right, so next time on the sequel cast, we'll be talking about Highlander 3, The Final Dimension, or depending on um, where you live, you know, it's just called Highlander 3, The Sorcerer, uh, in European markets, I believe. Oh, actually, uh, Matt, if I can ask you for some clarification. Earlier, you said that you felt Highlander 2 had an environmental message, and I said it didn't, and we were going to have it out. Are you still interested in having it out? Uh, we have a few minutes for that, sure. I mean, regarding Highlander 2's uh, environmental message, I think what it really is, it has to deal with, you know, the whole thing is about protecting the ozone layer and protecting from the things about the ozone, which is why the shield was put up in the first place. So... As I'm explaining this, I see how inherently that's anti-environmental, isn't it? Well, I guess, like, I I, I, I am the stance that it's not really, like, an environmental message. If there was an environmental message, it it clearly got lost at some point during production because they treat treat the ozone uh, layer disappearing. It's almost treated like a natural disaster. It's just something that has happened. There's no explanation for it. No one is responsible. Uh, there's no mention of chlorofluorocarbons carbons or anything like that. The ozone layer has just almost by magic gone away. And so a big hunk of technology is what saves everybody from it not being there. And then as far as how it comes back, once again, no explanation of how it came back. Because there's, there's no indication that mankind has changed any of its practices not that mankind is ever depicted in the film as being responsible for the ozone layer going away. It's it, the 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 disappearance of the ozone layer is just treated as an inexplicable natural disaster. Hmm. Oh, I think that's a fair point. You know, I think I I just think the whole concept of a rebel group trying to save the the earth and do something for the environment is something you see in a lot of eighties and nineties movies. And although the whole plot with the rebellion led by Virginia Madsen's character in Highlander 2 isn't a big part of that story, I think certainly they were trying to go for that sort of a message. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not even sure if they're like I'm not even sure if they're really eco terrorists because their only target is the corporation that is lying about how useful its product is. I mean, it's it's they're they're almost a consumer advocacy group with militant tactics. Uh, fair enough. I think you got me there. Okay. So, uh, next time on Sequel Cast, we'll be doing Highlander 3. And we'll be doing Highlander the next few weeks, you know, so a lot more of those movies to go. Um, and the various series. <laughs> oh, yes. So, I'm Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying, until next time. You know, I think you were from here, but then you're from there, except when you're there and in the past, but maybe when you're in the future, but sometimes not. Have, have you ever wanted to drive one of these things, little boy? So do I. <laughs> ashes to ashes, dust to dust. If you don't use it, it's going to rust. I love that line. That is a Do perfect, you? Oh, that's a perfect Ironside line.
Yeah, no, he's he's grinning like a Cheshire cat when he delivers it, that's for sure. Um, all right, good night. Good night. You can hear SequelCast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear SequelCast, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy, just find Stitcher in the App Store. Download it, it's free, and takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box and enter SequelCast to get automatically entered to win $100. The latest episode of the show will always be waiting for you in your favorites. You'll get access to lots of other amazing shows, too. Always available to you on demand, no syncing. It's Stitcher Smart Radio. Don't forget to enter the promo code SequelCast when you register. Just go to Stitcher.com slash SequelCast. (laughs) 